HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware, a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecruzet.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. MAD, the Danish word for food, is a nonprofit dedicated to bringing together a global cooking community. The first book of their Dispatches book series, You and I Eat the Same, is devoted to inspiring, educating, and creating sustainable, lasting change in how the world eats. I'm joined by its editor, the former editor and co-founder of the well-loved cult publication Lucky Peach, Chris Ng, Chris Ying, as well as MAD's executive director, director Melina Shannon DiPietro, who are both in town for New York City's first MAD Monday. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Carl. Thanks for having us. So let's start with where both of you are from. Uh, maybe we can go Chris and Melina and how that has brought you both to MAD. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm from Southern California, from Orange County. Uh, I, I can't really link how that brought me to MAD, uh, except to say that um, I grew up in a, in a food-ish family. My mom owned a Mexican restaurant. Uh, I am, I, I guess you can't see on the radio, I am not a Mexican person. <laughs> uh, I am a Chinese-American. My mom is a little old Chinese lady, and we I grew up eating pastrami quesadillas uh, at this Mexican restaurant that we owned, and uh, eventually sold to an Iranian guy, so like a very Southern California style. Like, wait, did she open the Mexican restaurant herself, or did she buy it from somebody? She partnered with she. Uh, this is going to be so wildly off track now. <laughs> uh, in this neighborhood in, in Los Angeles called Boyle Heights in East LA, um, it's traditionally been this like very utopian like melting pot throughout like the twenties and thirties. It was. Uh, like Jewish Americans was the first like Jewish enclave in Los Angeles and um, you know historians and sort of like uh, 
will talk about this neighborhood as this as this amazing place where you had Latino, Chicano people living with Jewish Americans, living with uh, African Americans and Japanese Americans. Like Boyle Heights was like one of the first places to um, elect a city council to to Los Angeles because like they had joined in this like amazing kind of joint effort to to get a city councilor elected. Anyway. Uh, the Breed Street Shul, one of the most important synagogues in America, was it was is in Boyle Heights, and as well as like the original location of Cantor's Deli. So like there's this very East LA thing of like pastrami making its way into Mexican food. My like <laughs> this is so long winded. In the 70s and 80s, it became um, you know a lot of Asian Americans started moving in there. Chinese Americans started moving into East LA, and it was like at that point that my mom read in a Chinese newspaper about this Mexican chef who was cooking all this like fresh food from like a gas station, uh, including these pastrami quesadillas. And she, you know, being a, a relatively recent immigrant as well, like in vaguely the same socioeconomic class, like living among people who are from other backgrounds, like took it upon herself to be like. I don't, why don't I open a restaurant with this guy? So uh, this was kind of my my formative food upbringing was like very much um, this like free form mixing between cultures that are just sort of natural and inevitable. Um, you know, I went to college at Berkeley and cooked professionally there in like, you know, Chez Panisse descendant kitchen. So like my whole entire uh, outlook on, on food and everything has been very much shaped by like these things that happen only in California and very different things that happen in Northern and Southern California. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to meeting the team at MAD and at NOMA, um, you see a lot of sort of similarities in these like natural and inevitable and um, sort of like undeniable collisions of cultures that happen in a kitchen where everyone's from a different place, but everybody is sort of working at the same exact level and has sort of the same tasks. And like this, this sort of thing that happens in the kitchens that I admire. And when it came time to do a book, you know, um, I was talking to Melina and to Renee and, and to the team over there. And, and it seemed like this was uh, like immigration and this sort of thing was just like what we had in common and also was sort of the most relevant thing to be talking about right now. Um, I feel like I did an okay job linking where I grew good. up to, yeah. to Mad. Come on. <laughs> that, that was uh, acrobatic. Okay, Melina. That was well done, and I even learned some things about Chris that I did not know. Full secrets. Um, I also, for the second time today, learned about the pastrami taco. Like I, so I grew up in Albany, New York, where there were not pastrami tacos. Yeah. Um, uh, probably what got you know the, the connection between Albany and Copenhagen is simply that I had grown up in a place cold enough and dark enough that Renee thought I could tough out <laughs> a Danish winter. Um, but I grew up in an immigrant family, so my dad's family came here from Sicily, came to Albany from Sicily when he was six, and food was, I mean, you've heard this story before, right? Food is, like, was the center of our home, and um, no one in our family worked professionally in food, but it was the thing that brought people together consistently, and I mean really consistently. Like, every Sunday at my grandmother's for pasta lunch with stew meats, Every Monday she was making, by the time we were like teenagers, she was making pizza out of dough left over from dough she would have made bread with the day before. Then we would be down to her house on Fridays during Lent for fish and, you know, pasta again. And so the kitchen and the dining room were the places we gathered. Um, but then beyond that, my 
grandparents and my mom made sure we were out on farms really regularly to be harvesting food. And that was the food we put up um, every year so that we had tomato sauce or fruits all through the winter. Um, And I loved this, thought it was normal. And then I went to college and learned, in fact, most people did not eat that way. Um, But food became food and this connection to the land and the way it brings people together became a huge passion for me. Um, And yes, when Chris and Renee and I were talking about this issue of dispatches, like one of our biggest agendas for MAD has been to move it beyond this circus tent in Copenhagen. So MAD was born as a symposium and it was born because Renee had the sense that there was this deep curiosity in the restaurant community to learn more. And, uh, you know, our ambitions are boundless but the size of this circus tent is limited. About 600 people fit inside. And so dispatches is one way that we're getting the word out beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when um, to the common foodie, non-foodie, I think I feel like when they hear MAD, they think like, oh, it's like the thing that's related to Noma. So how do you explain um, what MAD is and what MAD mission, MAD's mission is? And does it work still in tandem with or set apart from Noma? Yeah, our journey definitely began with Noma, uh, right? Renee began the Noma kitchen with an intense curiosity and a desire to explore, to understand the natural world. And that only grew. And MAD is an expansion of that yeah, you know, he was attending chef conferences and realized every time he was at a conference, whether he was asked to present or sitting in the audience, chefs were showing off technique. And it was a constant game of one-upsmanship, right? Who's got the cool new technique? And he came to ask himself, wait, there are other things I want to learn about. How do I get to learn about biology, sociology, history, science. And so six months later, the first symposium happened. That was in 2011. And I think now we think of conferences in the restaurant world for chefs, for servers, for people working in other roles. We consider them almost every day. But in fact, at that point, it was a big risk and a huge leap. Um, So at this point, we've had six symposia and they happen about every other year in Copenhagen. And so we're Copenhagen-centric in some ways, but always pushing the boundaries out. So we have a video online, uh, or a sorry, an archive of videos online that make all the talks from the symposium available to the general public. And this year, already a million people have watched those. So the affiliation to Noma is strong. The people who are coming to the symposium have like really signed, like invested in filling out applications and investing their time and resources to get there um and yet we want we want the tent to be bigger Mm -hmm. yeah so in expanding this tent you say that the book is kind of like the easiest way to spread this knowledge so quickly but um what other books do you have in mind for the series what why dispatches you know we're (laughs) (laughs) we're open to your ideas right now (laughs) yeah i mean the (laughs) the conversation in food evolves so quickly and so broadly. Um, And yet there's still these like sort of core values that mad has when it, when it comes to how we want to talk about these things that we want to talk about um, these things in kind of like a productive way or or a way that, that challenges people to think about things in in an unorthodox uh, from an unorthodox perspective or, or to, to, um, like really to like motivate action and so like it has to be 
this series rather than kind of like an encyclopedia or something or, or just like a, a, a collection of knowledge. Um, it, it should be something, I mean, we think that um, can evolve and change and take different forms with whatever the times, the demands and the, and the topic demands. Um, so, yeah. And I think one of the things that Chris did so beautifully in capturing the spirit of MAD in this dispatches is there's an important question to tackle, right? Migration, immigration, and how it shapes our food cultures, also how it shapes our restaurant worlds and our food systems. And he tackles that through a lens of narrative and also through a lens of inclusivity. And that those elements feel really important to the future issues as well. Yeah, definitely. So when I saw it online, um, it looks very much like a normal cookbook. And then when I got it um, in person, it was kind of like a lit mag, right? There was like the jacket and everything was like an essay. And there was this kind of reiteration of we, you know, not you, not I, but we a lot. Of. And so can you talk a bit about that choice and how that kind of maybe plays in tandem or against the fermentation book? Sure. Uh, I only know how to make lit mags. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I worked as the publisher at McSweeney's and then Lucky Peach. So, like, uh, you're on to me. I only have one trick in my bag. Um, no, it's the. It's interesting. Like, you bring up, like, we, we bring up that sort of plural first person thing a lot in the book when, when it comes to, like, talking about even, like, the photo captions. You know, it's like, we humans like to do this or that. Um, and it, it, like, admittedly is a little bit goofy. And I think that it's supposed to be kind of like shake you out of, of how you would typically see a picture of, you know, a an Asian person eating something and you would read the caption and ordinarily it would say something like um, Koreans like to do X, Y and Z this way. Um, and that's just sort of like the, the standard lexicon, the standard like sentence composition for a, a book about food, a cookbook of any any sort of food culture book. Um, I just wanted very purposefully to make it like humans do this and this and this um and you know not to sort of like uh to be a dick about it or to like just like hit people over the head with this idea but i think that the the sort of like weirdness of it and the fact that it's a little bit different than what you would normally see in that place is what i hope like somebody will see and be like oh i see what's happening here like i get it on some very basic level that cuisine is this thing that we all contribute to like that humans should all sort of take joint pride in um and yeah like just like <laughs> doing it in that kind of little overt gesture um i think is like what is what we we're trying to accomplish with this book generally is it's just like you a lot of this information you maybe know like maybe you've had these conversations about um what, what whether it's like appropriation or migration or or the spread of ideas um, maybe you're familiar with like all the different ways that humans eat flatbreads or, or wrap things in leaves, but um, why don't we think about them just in this kind of like 20 degrees different way rather than like the people of X country do this and the people of this country do this. Like, you know, you're a blank if you do this. Like, it's just just that little linguistic turn, I think, was a lot hinged on that. So it's, it's really interesting that you, you, you point that out. I think also those photo captions, I'm kind of presented this underlying narrative where um, their cultural boundaries are not bound by heritage necessarily, but really just by location. Like, can you talk about the, the Mennonite Mexican cheese thing, which was just so fascinating? <laughs> yeah. So Mennonites as a group, um, one of their sort of like foundational principles is to uh, separate themselves from outside influence. They, they don't want to be 
you know, in, in like a very sort of like pacifist way, they just want to um, not have their way of life interfered with by by other by governments or by religions or, or whatever, and they just want to kind of do their thing. Um, this has created a dynamic where they're constantly on the move move as as people they're always like sort of historically been bouncing from location to location looking for a government that would just sort of willingly let them farm the land and live their life uh but like <laughs> what's interesting is like when when you're moving and when you're constantly interacting with new cultures like you cannot like you cannot put yourself in a worse position if you're trying to not be influenced by others um so there's a uh you know a community of mennonites living in uh like a rural part of mexico and you know sort of trying to be <clears throat> their the, like do their own thing homesteaders and uh this writer michael snyder goes to visit them and he finds that uh they are dairy farmers who make mexican cheese and sell almost exclusively to the mexican community and mexican restaurants uh when you sit down to lunch with a mennonite uh person in mexico like you know the table has sort of their uh, regular things that you might expect, like clotted creams and what and whatever, like flatbreads, but uh, and also just like Mexican hot sauce and a can of jalapenos. Like you cannot escape this sort of influence, even if sort of culturally you are. Um, the food like just slips past these barriers, and that's like the great thing about food. That's the thing that makes it complex and and difficult to talk about, but also what makes it so amazing is like you just you for for people who want nothing more than to separate themselves, the thing that slips through is food. Yeah, I feel like that's now that hearing you talk about it kind of acts as like a a microcosm where these or it's like a little experiment where this small community is not bound to one land, but because they stick together and keep their traditions, they kind of still have a very strong identity. Um and how I feel like, um, as Chinese Americans, moving to, even from New York to California, California to New York, I feel like a lot of my cultural heritage gets lost in the move. And so how, how do you feel like different immigrant populations struggle with that? And how do they kind of fight against it? Yeah. I mean, it kind of depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, like, Melina was just saying growing up you had like a strong food tradition a strong familial food tradition probably like cultural tradition um that like a lot of us who are not you know don't come from italian american families like this is a thing that we all look at and are like i want that too like i want like tomato passata like in my, yeah sunday pasta like, sound like, pretty great <laughs> like we all i've made sunday pasta i'm always like i feel you know and it's so there is a strong urge i think and melinda you can tell me if i'm wrong but it's like preserve that kind of thing like uh, Italian American chefs are always sort of talking about their their grandmothers and like the food that they cooked and things like that. Um, and it is so important to preserve these traditions on a personal level. I think it is really like people derive identity and value and and self worth from their traditions and and their their heritage. Um, this book is a little bit about something different for like for me who grew up very American. Like I feel a strong connection to my Chinese heritage, but. When I see somebody saying, like, we need to preserve this thing, to me, it, it, I feel a little bit like that tomato, right? Like, I need, like, this, this cultural heritage of mine, this, this thing, these, this people needs to be stopped in time and kept a certain way. And I think that that's where it gets, like, a little bit dicey. And I think that, like, that's why this conversation, again, is difficult because there's no one right answer or wrong answer. And to sort of preserve tradition and, and heritage and culture is not to prevent 
sort of uh, change or um, intermingling of ideas and, and heritage and, and, and building new traditions. Um, you can have both of those things. Unfortunately, there's no like clear line. There's no like set of rules that says like, this is preservation. This is appropriation. Like that just doesn't exist. So like we have to continue to have these complex conversations. Fortunately, uh, sitting over a meal is sort of an ideal place to have these conversations. So, um, yeah, like I feel disconnected in a lot of ways from, uh, my Chinese, Chinese heritage, um, and connected in a lot of ways. And I think that like one of the challenges for first, second generation, um, people is to figure out like how to, how to walk that line. Um, like this is all new. This is all new territory. Like America is a young country. We're a young culture. We're sort of right in the throes of things that other countries have been through for generations and millennia. So, um, you know, we, we were just, we're just sorting it out. We just keep talking about it. I would add, like, I think you're very right that we're young at this and, and growing into it, right? My grandmother's lunch table is a snapshot in time. I remember the smell of her foyer when you arrived on Sunday. It doesn't exist anymore, right? It stopped when she died. And the table I'm much more interested in right now is the one that includes my sister-in-law's foods from Kazakhstan and my brother-in-law's foods. And um, it's a very different table than it ever has been before, but it's still the one that brings us together. And I think in the same way, this book starts to tell those stories and gets people just ever so slightly acknowledging or opening up to the idea that difference is good. Some of the some of the reader feedback that's excited me most is actually from librarians or public school teachers who are talking about introducing this book to their students. Uh, that that feels to me like there's a valuable conversation to have with a broad public about this, and that the stories in that book help make it accessible. Mm-hmm. It's like a nicer history book to open as a kid. <laughs> like it's colorful, the pictures are really big. And it's like oh, it's food, so I kind of get it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say, I want to know about that. like, Coral, I, I think that, like, uh, you know, it's interesting, like, as, as Chinese Americans, you do feel, like, this sense of loss if you're, if this, if these traditions or connections disappear. I think, Melina, you know, you, you say, like, that that table kind of died with your yeah. grandmother, but, like, there's just, there's a sense of loss and kind of wistfulness about these things, and, and, and it's important, and it's important to feel those things, um, like, on a very basic level, like, what this book is about and what I'm trying to say is like that nostalgia. If you, if you flip it around and you look at it from the other perspective, like that's what also gets us into trouble. This, this whole like make America great again thing is based on this, this nostalgia for something that needs to be preserved, like a way of life that needs to be preserved that actually hinges upon us being different and, and staying in our lanes. So um, that's, it's like, again, it's tricky territory and like, I'm not trying to solve it with the book. It's just, like the, we have to think about both of these things simultaneously, like the importance of our, our traditions and also like what that looks like when you go too far and trying to, to hang on to this thing or to recreate this, this thing. Sort of a morality check confession on air. Um, I'm writing an article about dim sum. And in Southern California, a lot of the traditional stuff is kind of gone already. You know, you have maybe like mango pudding, which is a little more Americanized. And so the article is on kind of like the lost dim sum desserts. And so I'm looking, um, I'm reading or looking for books. And there's Carolyn Phillips' uh, dim sum field guide. And it's so thorough and well-researched. And she has this blog that is just so good. And initially it was kind of like, 
how dare she? You know, how, <laughs> yeah. did, how dare she know more about me than I do? But then it was kind of like, she deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I mean, I, it's the exact same thing for me. I'm always like, oh, this, this white person is like telling me what my food is like. <laughs> I, like, why are they doing this? And then I'm like, this white person knows more yeah. than I do. Like, <laughs> like knows the characters, knows right? the like, opinion and everything. If I had like, maybe if I had just studied harder, <laughs> like, which brings it all back to the Asian American way of life. Anyway, we just got to study harder. <laughs> but really there's, I think Renee's essay comments really beautifully on this idea, right? That the more we encounter people we don't know or cultures we don't know, and the more we open ourselves to learning, like the deeper you can go and whole worlds open up so that a white lady is writing the book you really like about dim sum. <laughs> so let's go back to, um, I'm more interested in kind of your journey from Lucky Peach to Dispatches because I feel like Lucky Peach kind of opened the conversation in terms of food media. Um, and yeah, so can you talk a bit about your journey and what even got you to leave your seriously publishing job, right, to start Lucky Peach? Um. Yeah, so like I said, I cooked in restaurants through college, and a little bit after I worked, I started, I helped Anthony Mint and, and Danny Bowen start Mission Chinese Food and Mission Street Food, um, and at the same time, I was working as uh, an editor, designer, publisher at this at this company called McSweeney's in San Francisco, and like to the like literally to the point where I was sort of working my my publishing job from like nine to three, and then I would run down the street and go cook from like three to midnight, and then do it all over again. Uh, and like very much trying to keep these two things separated. Um, the more this conversation has evolved and the more I started coming into contact with chefs and cooks who um, didn't just want to talk about food, but could could speak about, you know, like Linda said, sort of like sociology, history, philosophy, art, you know, all sports, whatever, music. Um, I realized that there's this real genuine overlap with food like food is not just this thing that this this non-cultural thing it's like that's yeah, the same things that happen in food can be seen in in, in sports and music this is the way that ideas spread the way that that um cultures interact and um you know like meeting dave chang having all these conversations with him just sort of like opened my eyes to the ways that like oh we could do some food media stuff differently we could talk about things that have to do with food but things that you still want to read about food even when you're not hungry um and so you know long story short we started this magazine that we really just did for ourselves like we were our own, only audience <laughs> like uh after making the first one i i've i've said this before but like it really came as a shock to me that we had to do another one. It's kind of like, oh wait, people, other people saw this. Like, I, I don't want to, I don't have that many more ideas. But you know, fortunately, we did a lot, and um, you know, it, it introduced me to to people that I, you know, never would have met ordinarily, and people who have just like inspired and amazed me. Renee being one of them. Um, you know, here's the world's best chef and, and probably one of the most famous people in food and, and you can sit and have a conversation with him about things that uh, range well outside of you know what's on a plate somewhere and so um, I left the first uh, the second mad Sym symposium was the first time I went to one and I left like just completely blown away in a way that like I, I would have laughed at you know a few years prior like I would have never imagined that going to you know Copenhagen, this kind of like fairy tale land and sitting in a tent and listening to people talk about food and um, personal responsibility and, and sort of the, the power of, of food and the platform it had. Like I, I really felt like we could do something. Um, and so, you know, I started a nonprofit for climate change, but then 
uh, and I would attend Matt every year and kind of help out with the curation and things like that. And then this book series came up and, um, it had just, it was like right at the tail end of, of Lucky Peach. And, um, you know, I wanted to keep doing something with, with food and, and media where it felt purposeful and maybe a little bit different, um, than what I was, what I was seeing and maybe spoke to some of the things that like I was, I was trying to grapple with myself, um, that I hadn't, uh, <laughs> seen other people do. And, and, and really like the truth is like dispatches, I think I wrote in the introduction, like this title, you and I eat the same was like very much like a hypothesis and very much a guess at what was true or not. And, um, we tried to play it out by like, uh, selfishly, like I learned a lot from just like getting these writers and contributors to tell me their thoughts on questions that I had. So it was like this amazing like seminar for me, essentially just being able to say like, I've always wondered if this is true and just like email a writer and say, will you write like 2000 words about this so I can read it? Um, and so, yeah, again, it was like kind of the same lucky piece spirit. Like I, I made a thing that was very selfishly like directed uh, at, at my interests and like hopefully um, other people found the same things interesting. I feel like Chris might have done the best advertisement for the impact of Mad Symposium that I've ever heard. So you attend the Mad Symposium, you join the Mad community, you end up change, starting a nonprofit that <laughs> deals with climate change and food, and then create uh, world-transforming literary magazines and books. It's, yeah, I don't know if every Mad, Mad attendee gets to edit a book <laughs> for Mad, but it, it, it definitely was like an inspirational little journey for me. Mm-hmm. Melina, yeah, I was going to ask you, so um, you were talking a bit about how before conferences were about technique solely, right? And now it's becoming, because of MAD, um, more about culture or society or political issues. And so why should non-foodie people care about this book? Mm, That's a great question. Um, You know, as I was landing at the airport here today, I read... um, an article about the new representative from the Bronx, Alexandra Cortez, yeah, and uh, she's talking about food, and it was so refreshing to hear a congressperson who sees the nexus of food, this question of climate, of immigration, of economy, um, everything actually comes to our dinner table. Uh, you know, in the U.S., uh, third of the people working in food are immigrants. And so I think if you care broadly about culture, you want to be paying attention to food. Um, We've had museums and we've had ballets for a long time. Um, Restaurants and MAD as a way to support the the education of people working in the restaurant world are a way way to support food culture. Um, And I think, you know, you want to read this book because you pick it up, like you said, you pick it up and you find it captivating. Like, I'm looking forward to leaving it on our coffee table when I'm home for Christmas and watching my dad pick it up. (laughs) One of the stories in there will catch your attention. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back after a short break. Experiencing ascension symptoms. I fall asleep, but I'm wide awake. I'm living color in a world of gray. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I was introduced to Le Creuset Cast Iron Skillets many years ago in my first restaurant, Muggsy's Chow Chow in the East Village. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with unparalleled performance and the ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. 
And I love easy cleanup after running my own restaurants in New York for 23 years. Le Creuset Original Heirloom Cookware is backed by a lifetime warranty. Their bold colors and timeless designs allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network, and we're back. Um, and so this is kind of a, an obvious or a gimme question I'm going to ask both of you. Um, what current political, social, economic issues or storm has made it the perfect time to talk about these issues? Wow. <laughs> I will say when we started working on this book, we were afraid that these issues would no longer be timely. <laughs> unfortunately, we were incorrect. Yeah. Unfortunately, and uh, I mean... There was like a so this book came about like when I think Trump first announced his Muslim ban. The the talk about the border wall was sort of at its most fevered pitch. Um, you know, for an organization like MAD that wants to talk about the issues that uh, involve and, and um, affect food, there was no other thing to talk about at this time than immigration and, and, and the value of people moving. Um, we did have a discussion, we were like. Oh, but I mean, like, I don't know, like maybe this will blow over and people will just go back to like not caring about this anymore. And maybe Trump won't be so crazy. Uh, we were wrong about all of that. Um, the, you know, the conversation has has become deeper and, and, and more involved. And, uh, you know, it, <laughs> yeah, there's 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 sort of like nothing that you can talk about in food right now other than immigration or, or the environment like this is something that is right at the center of everything that's going on in the world it's 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 hard to even pin it down to to one event or one series of events yeah i must say chris is pretty pre- pretty much accurately summed it up there um my sister-in-law who is a permanent resident from kazakhstan a permanent resident of the u.s still hasn't visited copenhagen uh, because of what a difficult time it is to travel. So it's very funny to me that I can visit with her here. She'll send me home with some of her lapjong sauce, which is like this beautiful, super spicy hot pepper sauce. Um, and that's what gets to travel with me. Um, there aren't any borders for the food itself. So in the book, um, there is an essay by Rene Redzepi, and he talks, or he has this really beautiful, and um, we were talking about this before the show, if not slightly naive quote, um, that... If it grows here, it belongs here. So can you talk a bit about this purposeful naivete? Yeah. Um, I think that this book tries to present um, perspectives on immigration from places beyond just like sort of what, uh, you know, what could uncharitably called the coastal elites uh, talk about. Um when I talk to Rene about immigration, who is himself an immigrant cook in, in Copenhagen, in Denmark, who, whose family had lived the most like iconic, just like uh, immigrant story, you know, coming and, and working janitorial jobs and so their kids could get ahead and, and Rene finding his path through food as a young person, um, you know, and, and like them having a Muslim heritage in a country that's, you know, not entirely friendly to, to Muslim people, um, you know, 
he comes from it like that being said he comes from it from a very different place than we do in america like this conversation and melina can can speak to this having lived in copenhagen for a couple of years now like is is very different in in denmark like the um the sort of like <laughs> passion and also complexity with which we have this conversation in america like doesn't necessarily exist in copenhagen and so like it was really fascinating for me to have these conversations with somebody like renee who's not steeped in this language and this jargon every single day because it can become really tiring to hear immigration framed in the same sort of way every single day by the same sources and so to hear him talk about it and to kind of like whittle it down to his experience in the kitchen um and, and kind of relate the, the way that people in Europe or in Scandinavia think of immigrants as outsiders and try to relate that to the way like his restaurant began as this very um, finite exploration of what it meant to cook Nordic cuisine only to somewhat like realize the folly in that and to, and to say like everything comes from somewhere else and, and to look at ingredients that would feel completely foreign in a Nordic kitchen like chilies um, and say you know what, if we can actually, if we can plant a chili here and it will grow into a plant and, and we can use it profitably to, to make better food and, and to help people like see new things, then like, why shouldn't it be here? Um, immigration is obviously different because it's dealing with people and it's a complex thing, but sometimes you just need to like take that step back and see things from this perspective that you might be able to understand and say, and say like, oh, this like food does taste better. This thing that I ate that like would traditionally not have chili in it objectively tastes better um maybe trying to like see see your world that way even if you don't agree with it even if like the nuance is far more complicated than that is just like all all we can hope for at this moment is for people to be able to adjust their perspective even slightly um because otherwise everybody's immovable and we're we're not getting anywhere yeah so when for example with this chili example um part of me there is that sneaking doubt or kind of clinging to nostalgia or tradition where it's like that's messed up right because if this chili is decontextualized in Copenhagen then it loses all its cultural heritage or maybe the history of who brought the chili over right and so how do you prescribe navigating that nostalgia um by taking that step back and saying like oh this chili belongs to the new world, but without this chili in India or Thailand, there would be no spice that we associate so strongly with these cuisines. So if we're going to say, you know, it, it shouldn't be in Scandinavia, it shouldn't be in Denmark because it's, it's, it's decontextualized is also to say like, I guess we have to call all Indian food, like Mexican Indian food too. Right. Like mm -hmm. I know that that's a simplification too, my point again is like this is all nuanced and there is no clear thing like clearly um that that comparison falls apart a little bit when you look at the dynamics of how europeans have interacted traditionally with people indigenous people in in, in north and south america and central america um how like the circumstances of the chili moving originally from the from mexico to places like india or or asia like these are all different things and it's i know it's like a little facile for me to say like one they're the same but like i'm not i'm just saying everything comes from somewhere else that's not the end of the conversation but that's like the first realization for us to be having these these conversations and and yeah um <clears throat> people can feel like something is taken from them um, when they see when they see like a chili show up in a place that's that's unexpected, um, and that's fine. Like you should, 
but you should also say you know does it does it taste good in this context like let's let's like dwell in that for a moment and and think about like the implications of that and 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 uh whether or not that can be meaningful unto itself in my first few weeks in Copenhagen, of course, I was wanting to eat everything Danish. And I was like, pork and potatoes and pickled herring and more herring. And then <laughs> someone handed me cookies that had traditional Danish cookies with cardamom and ginger and cinnamon in them. In them. And I was like, what are these spices, which I so, so strongly associate with India, doing in these cookies? And, you know, take one step back and it's actually pretty obvious that it's about... Uh, colonial history and a trade trade route and then there's many other more interesting stories even deeper under that about like a lonely dane who set up a small village in india while he was waiting for his people to return uh, but i think it's um it's worth remembering that nothing is static and in the moments where we try to preserve things just as they are right now as if it were a polaroid photo that's when things start to decay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were talking about how um, Renee doesn't really see these the cultural appropriation jargon that we're so steeped in here in America. And so I feel like this book really proved to me that um, seeking out, quote-unquote, authentic food is really futile, right? There's no right definition. And But why in America do we still have this guilt at savoring inauthentic food? Uh, I mean... <laughs> You and I have that guilt. Not everybody has that guilt. Um, yeah, it's it's futile because um, you're drawing a line at like what where like authenticity begins, where something starts, and or I mean, I wouldn't limit it to just Chinese Americans. I feel like there's this huge badge of honor. Um, where like I found the most authentic tacos in Flushing. Right, right. That, so that's like that's the stuff right there that like makes me cuckoo. Is like the like even, even like the language of that. Like I'm not I'm not putting this on you. I'm just saying that that's like what you're saying is like directly out of like every right. conversation you have with like a foodie or look at it and Yelp mm-hmm. or something is like I found this thing. I discovered this little place and it's like just like Christopher Columbus like out here finding these indigenous mm-hmm. things, right? Like that's what makes it so maddening. Um, there's this. It's again. It's it's complicated because like we we as sort of like privileged foodies kind of find these things and we feel like, oh, like this is like, I feel some ownership over this in the way that like, like I, f- I feel cool, like listening to the indie band. Um, and, and like that part bothers us. But like you talk to the, the restaurant owners of these places, they're all more than happy to be like, we cook the most authentic food. Like they've recognized the value in this too. Like they're making uh, a living from, you know, the, the, hipsters and before that bohemians who like who who want to go out and find this you know quote-unquote ethnic food or or whatever like um (laughs) part of it is that like this conversation about authenticity and and discovery and and whatever is only happening at like the privileged level when you like look at the immigrant business owner they're more than happy to exploit whatever opportunity is, is available to them so um yeah and like you know a lot of this was started with uh you know, people like Jonathan Gold and, and Anthony Bourdain, who who kind of created this, um, what has become this fetish of ours. And um, it's been sort of like exacerbated by Instagram, where you take a picture of this thing to sort of prove that you were there. Um, 
and it, it, it like it's it's a little bit sad. Just like the the whole thing with gold and, and Bourdain was always like, there's more to the story than than what's on the plate. Like there's always more there. Um, you know, Bourdain's own death was like a, a like a, such a, a perfect example of it. Like here here was a guy we thought had everything that we wanted and there was more to that story and so like some of this kind of like let's go to flushing and find the best tacos and then post it on instagram like um can be dicey because you think like oh that's a way of engaging with another culture but really it's like you've stripped all culture and meaning from this thing because you're like it's come down to like uh the the modern equivalent of like a four square check-in right like I, i was there um planting a flag there i'm going wildly off track here. For me, I think I think there's something really important there. Uh, the conversation about inauthenticity catches, it gets stuck on culture, but I think it's truly a conversation about consumption and how we consume. And it's really uncomfortable to face the conversations around privilege that allow us to have the conversations about authenticity or what is authentic, right? For my parents, going to Disney World was a big deal. There was not international travel like Epcot Center. That was that was as close as you were going to get in their world experience. Um, was it good? Probably not. Uh, were all the power structures around it uh, well-meaning? Probably not also. But I think it's more we as individuals have a responsibility to think about how we are interacting in, a, in an experience and in a system. Yeah, um, in closing, so we talked a bit about how MAD's mission is to kind of connect maybe diners with other diners, right? Cross cultures, cross disciplines with like the fermentation book. Um, but I feel like there still is, and this isn't just on you, but in the whole food business, there's this huge disconnect between the consumer and the producer. And so how have you thought about uh, maybe reconciling the two? Wow. So, I mean, we want to work with every restaurateur, every server, every chef. What's so interesting about this time right now is the consumers are listening to what they say. I think there are some big challenges around the true cost of food and true conditions and working environments and how many different hands are feeding us all the time and the immigration of status of those people that haven't been, um, that are uncomfortable for all of us. And I think that will be something we continue to tackle in the future. <laughs> Volume two. <laughs> <laughs> and then some. Yeah. Uh, this is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.